How's it going? Good to be with you guys this afternoon. Um, if you have a Bible, let's open those up to Daniel chapter 2. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, there should be Bibles on the back table or on the entryway. Um, that uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible, take it home with you as our gift to you. So um, right now, if you have a Bible, let's, let's open those up to Daniel chapter 2. So we're going to be uh, together this evening. Um, man, I, I think back a lot, I don't know about you, to last March 2020. Uh, you know, that, that infamous week where we all got the news uh, that our lives were changing and uh, we all didn't know how long they would be changing, but uh, vividly remember uh, the week that we were moving over to Kelly Creek to start holding our worship services there and being told, hey, we can't have you in the schools for a while, we're all on lockdown, and, and our minds were just kind of running a little rampant, like, what does this mean? And I, I've said this to many of you, but I remember calling Kelly Creek being like, well, can we get in there for Easter? How about a good Friday service? And they're like, you know, we don't know. Or, or even as a parent, uh, you know, the idea of parenting our kids and having them come home for school for so long, and, and we were all told, you know, hey, this will probably be to the end of April. And then we're like, oh, maybe it's May. And then finally it was, hey, you're not going back to school this year. And so we all were just enduring this constant, un, not knowing what the future held, and we'd get there, and then it keep getting pushed further out. Right? But what's weird about that is all of us, we always want to know the future, don't we? We live in that tension. And uh, I've thought about this so many times, though. How horrible would it have been if last March the announcement would go, hey, you got to stay home and you're not going to gather with GBC again until August? That would have been really difficult news, you know, not knowing where we would gather and all these things. I'd have all these questions going through my mind. Or as a parent, could you imagine if you were told, hey, sorry, yeah, your kids, they're going to be home with you for over a year. It wouldn't be until last week where they go to school for the entire time, right? That would have probably been crushing to our spirit, wouldn't it? So in a good way, we, I think we could all say, when, you know, last March as an example, isn't it a good thing that we don't know the future, it's a really good thing. It's a gracious thing from God that we don't know the future. But the weirdest thing is the tension that we live in is, is we want to know it. We always want to know it. We want to know what's coming. We want to be prepared. But if we knew so many things, it'd be very difficult for us. Uh, what's interesting about the chapter that we're in this afternoon is that it's, it's really one of those rare times where the future is revealed, where the future is actually revealed, and it has a very polarizing effect. For some people in our text, it generates fear, and, so for, and for some people in our text, it generates hope through faith, and this future is actually revealed to us through this dream, through this dream. So in Daniel chapter 2, what we're, what we're coming to you guys here is the longest chapter in Daniel. So if you can make it through this week, you can make it through anything, right? You can make it through anything. Well, that's not true. We're actually teaching chapters 10 through 11 at once, so that'll be fun, right? But chapter 2, the longest chapter in, in Daniel, and if you weren't with us last week, I want to strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you haven't heard that message yet, because it'll help really tee up for you what the book of Daniel is really all about. And it was a very important message, even in the life of our church, as we begin to think about how the book of Daniel instructs us to live faithfully at the margins of our society. Um, today, though, we come to this critical story in understanding even the book of Daniel, and, and what we encounter here is God himself. And so this is what I'm going to do. I debated what to do here. I'm just, we're going to do story time. I'm going to read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. 
So buckle up. It's going to be a good time. Uh, so you'll want to, they'll be on the screen for you, but I would even encourage you just to open a Bible, have it in front of you, and follow along if you can do that. So let's read all this together, Daniel chapter 2. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king its interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, 
No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And here's what he saw. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain filled and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and to whose hand he has given Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise against you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. We did it. Chapter 2, guys, this is what we see. In verses 1 through 13, we see God speaking. And this creates fear in a disturbed and desperate king. 
Secondly, we see God is speaking. And this creates faith in a wise and bold servant. And then lastly, we see this great dream that's coming true, that God is coming, that God is coming. And this creates hope in a worshipful and grateful people. See that in the last section, 31 through 49. So let's do our best to walk through this very relevant, very important story for our lives. So first, God is speaking, and let's see how this creates fear in this disturbed and desperate king. Verse 1, we encounter, again, if you weren't here last week, the most powerful man in the world at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's having these repeated dreams that he doesn't like. And as a result, he's anxious and he's worried he cannot sleep. I wonder if you've ever felt that way before. You ever been too anxious to where you've had a hard time sleeping? You laid in bed stirring and stirring, just not able to find peace. I'm not great at many things. My wife says my one skill is parallel parking, okay? So uh, I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what she says. But I think I have a second skill, and that is the skill of falling asleep. Pretty good at it, okay? I take pride in being a great sleeper. I can pretty much sleep on command. Fun fact, in high school, I did a sleep test, and they thought I had narcolepsy because I could sleep every time. So, um, but I I don't. So I guess I'm kind of humble bragging here. I'm a great sleeper, you guys. Um, uh, But because I sleep so well, it's tough when on rarer occasions, I just can't sleep. You know what it's like, sleep is deeply disturbing, you know, the, the, the dreams you have, the brain is just on repeat, all the things that you're worried about and what's going to happen about those things. And, and so I'll find myself just lying in bed all worried and anxious about things, and the, and the more I think about it, the more I can't sleep. I, I imagine that you've been there before, that feeling of lacking peace. But think about this. We're us, right? This is the king. Right? What does he have to worry about that will make him anxious? He is the most powerful man in the world. He can kind of do anything, yet he's unsettled. Now, we know from other sources that Nebuchadnezzar was quite a spiritual man. He lived in a culture where the Babylonians, they believed that dreams were the gods speaking into the world. And so they had all these people, a significant number of people, who basically had jobs. Their vocation was to hear dreams and interpret those dreams and try to discern for about what the gods were trying to speak into this world. And so we see in verse 2 that this king basically calls these people together who have this kind of a job, verse 2. And because, what does he want? He wants their input. And verse 3 is interesting because, again, you have the most powerful king in the world, and what does he say to them? I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So he's a little bit vulnerable here. And he's saying, this is is really bothering me. It's troubling me. And look at these smart people's response. Verse 4, O king, live forever. That sounds like a good way to start, especially if you know that your king is upset, right? Basically, they're like, O king, you're amazing. We hope that you live forever. You know, just buttering him up in some way. So they start there and they move on. They say, tell your servants the dream. We'll tell you what it is, the interpretation. That'd be pretty standard practice, right? Can you interpret my dream? What is it? Tell me the dream. Oh, this is this. This is what's happening here, right? But look, Nebuchadnezzar is so stirred up that in verse 5, look what he says. He says, tell me first the dream that I had, and then I'll know that you know the interpretation. 
So he, he won't even tell them the dream. He wants them to know the dream, right? And then look at what happens if they don't do it. Verse 5, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Have you ever had such a bad dream that you woke up wanting to kill people? Anybody? I really hope not, right? It's a pretty intense dream, right? This guy is really stressed out. He says, if you don't do this, I will destroy you and your property. But hey, good news, if you tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'll give you gifts, I'll give you a reward, I'll give you great honor. See that in verse 6. This doesn't sound like a great deal, right? I mean, I would probably just imagine these guys are like, we'll just, we won't have the gifts, right? Can we have a little bit of like grace here, you know? It's not really that great of a deal, utter destruction or some honor. So they respond again, verse 7, they say the same thing, well, just tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't budge, he says in verse 8, you're just trying to gain time. I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. If I tell you the dream, then you could just kind of make something up and you can get away with it. That's basically what he knows is going to happen. Right? We know how this exact thing would work. Like if you and I were talking after the service today and you were like, hey, it was interesting today about dreams. Speaking of dreams, I had this crazy dream last night. There was this tree, it just kept growing and growing and growing and these four lions showed up and knocked the tree over and there was randomly no roots at the tree. Like crazy dream, what do you think it means? I, I'm not a dream interpreter, okay? I'm not a dream interpreter. But I could just say to you, oh, really? I could tell you what that means. The, the tree that's growing and growing, that's your dreams. That's your goals. And the four lions represent four kids that you're going to have, and they're, they're going to crush your dreams. And, and the lack of roots, the lack of roots is the lack of sleep that you're going to have. So that's, that's the interpretation of the dream. You might say, man, that's overwhelming. That's believable, and, uh, you know, you'd probably want to destroy me and my property. I don't know. Probably something like that. But do you see? I mean, I'm just making this up, right? You can make this stuff up if you wanted to, and you could even make it sound good and believable. That's what he's thinking. He's like, I know what you guys do. So if you're really good at this, then tell the dream first. So this subset group in verses 10 through 11 says, this is impossible. Only the gods could do that, and they are distant. But they aren't interested or willing to speak. They don't dwell with flesh. Remember, Babylonian people were polytheistic. And we're actually going to see next week how Nebuchadnezzar himself was, to believe to, was believed to be a god who you actually would worship. And fascinatingly here, Nebuchadnezzar, who's worshipped as a god, can't even understand his own dream. And so in verses 12 through 13, what does he do? He's enraged and he commands them all, including Daniel, and his friends that we met in chapter 1, his three friends, he, they're commanded to be destroyed. Right, so here's what we see here. God is speaking. And in this speaking, what we see is the destructive nature of fear and insecurity in Nebuchadnezzar. The fear that's just cultivated in his life of not knowing what this means and what this would mean for me is creating this fear and insecurity and it is poisoning him. His worldview can't bear the weight of this threatening dream. And so we need to see that no matter how much power that you think you can have, no matter how much wealth or education or influence someone has, those things cannot fix a troubled heart. Right? It won't help for your sleepless nights. Fear is very destructive, you guys. So if you and I just think, I just need more power, if I just had a little bit more control, you know what, then I wouldn't have these problems. 
Well, who had more power and control, humanly speaking here, than Nebuchadnezzar, and it didn't fix it? The unknown can generate so much fear, it can even lead to paranoia or the ability to only dwell on the, the what-ifs this and the what-ifs of that. Well, what if that happens? Instead of focusing on the what is. That's the first thing. The second thing we see is God continues to speak, but this is met with and creates this faith in this wise and bold servant, 14 through 30. So Daniel and his friends, what are they doing? They're facing execution. But as they come looking for Daniel, look what happens in verse 14. He replies with prudence and discretion. So in the face of looming execution, Daniel has discretion. He is calm. He is wise. And so he asks in verse 15 to Arioch, he goes, well, what's the rush? Why is there such a rush on trying to get us killed? And Arioch explains why. So in verse 16, if you look there, Daniel goes in and he makes a request for more time. He says, give me a little bit of time. I'll make known the dream and I'll make known the interpretation. And surprisingly, the king agrees to this. We don't know why. So Daniel goes home in verse 17 and he goes to tell his friends the situation. And I imagine it went something like this. Daniel comes home to his three friends and he goes, hey guys, I've got some really good news and I've got some bad news. Right? The bad news is, is that we're all about to be executed. Okay? That's pretty bad news. Okay? The good news is that I've asked for a little bit of time that if I can understand and come up with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and give him the interpretation accurately, we'll be good. We won't be killed. Right? But there's more bad news. I don't know what the dream is. Right? I don't know what the dream is. So I've made this deal, but I don't really know how it's going to work out. Just think about what he's done here. Like, don't minimize how intense and bold the situation is. He didn't yet know the dream or the interpretation, but he asks boldly for the opportunity, not only to save himself and his friends, but everybody. What do you think made Daniel so bold? I mean, last week we just saw him as a teenager, and and not much time at all has passed at this point. So in a way, is this just the boldness of some naive youth? You know, he doesn't know any better, and he's bold because he hasn't lived long enough, that kind of thing. Or could this actually be the boldness of real faith? Real faith that hasn't experienced the creeping cynicism that so often comes with age. I mean, often those of us who've lived, maybe as Christians, for any length of time, or if you've lived in this world for a long time, we can all become quite cynical in areas of faith, can't we? So now when we see the boldness of faith, maybe in a new believer or even in in younger people, for example, we can think to ourselves, if we're honest, oh, that's sweet. I remember being like that. But that'll wear off. They just got to live a bit longer. They'll see right? They experienced the real world for a little while. They'll know. I mean, maybe you can identify that sort of creeping cynicism in your own life. You remember a time where, where you prayed and you believed with bold faith, right? You saw brokenness in this world, and when you saw that, you just saw opportunities for God to work. Nothing was outside of God's ability or willingness to redeem and restore But over time, as you saw the brokenness of the world after some prayers that went unanswered, maybe, skepticism and cynicism has maybe taken a deep-placed root in your life. Guys, this is not God's desire for us as his people. He desires for us to have this kind of bold faith who believes that God has always been faithful, 
So why would he not be faithful today? He is at work today, and he will be faithful. So Daniel tells his friends the situation. And in chapter 2, verse 18, Daniel says what? Let's seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. He has this faith. And that night, the text tells us in verse 19, God gave him understanding. The mystery was revealed to Daniel. So what does Daniel do? He doesn't go, whew, right? Got to get this over with, right? No, Daniel, what does he do? What does he first do? He gives praise to God. And what does he praise God for? He declares that wisdom and might belong to God, meaning God possesses it. It's his possession. So you want might? Belongs to God. He owns it. You want wisdom? God owns it. God owns it. It's his. It belongs to him. And then he continues his praises by saying God changes times and seasons. He is sovereignly the one who removes kings and sets them up. And if he has wisdom and might, if it belongs to him, he can give wisdom. He can give knowledge. He can raise up and tear down. And so what does he say? Thank you, God. You did this. He takes joy in saying, I don't know, but God knows. God knows. And what I don't know of God, he can let me in on it if he wanted. So verse 24, after he has this sort of doxology experience, Daniel goes back to this man, Arioch. He says, hey, can you take me to the king? Arioch tells Daniel, brings him in and says to Nebuchadnezzar, what does he say? I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the interpretation. It says that in verse 25. So this man is, is clearly an opportunist, isn't he? Because we know from the story, he didn't find Daniel, Daniel found him, but tomato, tomato, right? Whatever looks good in front of the boss, I guess, you know? So now there's this answer, this guy, he's like, I want credit for this. I found this guy for you. Maybe I'll get some rewards, that kind of thing. There's like pride in Arioch that you're meant to see. So Daniel is brought in, and the king asks Daniel, can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? So just stop right here. Think about the scene. The most powerful person on planet Earth at the time, on one side, on one side, and an exiled, conquered teenager on the other. One could easily have the other one's head taken off, but these two, but of these two, one is desperate and disturbed, the other's at peace. The conquering king is out of his mind. The conquered servant appears to be at ease. So we see these two very different people with very different worldviews, very different gods. And these beliefs somehow feed how they respond. So Daniel's life is on the line here. He's brought in to see the king, and the king wants to know the dream and the interpretation. So I would imagine standing before somebody this powerful, you'd probably feel the need to kind of cut to the chase a little bit, right? Like, okay, I'll just get it over with. Like, this is what it says. This is what it means, that kind of thing. But what does Daniel do? He doesn't start there. He preaches to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 27 through 28. Daniel answered the king, hey, are you able to make known to me the dream? He answers him, and he says what? No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has had. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
So he preaches, before I get to your dream, king, there's something you need to understand. I want you to know that this wisdom I'm about to share with you came from God, not me. It came from the God of heaven. So what do you see here in Daniel? On one hand, you see Daniel's humility in that in this moment, in this influential moment, he wants to draw the tension away from himself and to fix the king's eyes on God. So he's humble here. Again, as opposed to Arioch, who's trying to take credit for something he didn't do. But he's also courageous because he's standing before this king and he speaks directly to the king about these things. He spoke seemingly without fear. Now remember back in verse 11, we see something repeated here. What was it said of all these magicians and all these people that were there? They said, no one can reveal this king except the gods. Big problem, they don't, their dwelling is not with flesh. That was what they said. Right? We, we saw that last time, just earlier in verse 11. The gods won't come near. And Daniel initially agrees with them in verse 27. Do you see that there? He says what? No wise man can show this mystery. So everyone's been correct that only God can reveal this. We're all on the same page here. But then verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made it known. So he's saying there is a message for you, Nebuchadnezzar, and this message is from the God of heaven, and by speaking to you, king, God is speaking to the world. So this, this is no distant God. This is the God who speaks. He's the God who speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, and by speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, he speaks to the world, and right now he's speaking to you. He's the God who speaks today. And God has placed Daniel there in that moment, in that place, so that he could speak to the king. But Daniel hadn't always been there. How did Daniel get there? Well, first, he had to be ripped away from his homeland, right? Last week, in a devastating attack, he was conquered. He was pulled away from his family, his friends, his places of worship. Remember, he was educated in the Babylonian schools, given a new name. All these things. Remember that? But now look where he is. So was it by chance that Daniel was in Babylon and not in Jerusalem? No, not by chance. This is by design. By God's sovereignty, he moves Daniel from Judah to Babylon for this purpose. This is not random. As and I would say, where you are today is not random. It's not by chance that you live where you live. It is not by chance that you work where you work. It is not by chance that you go to school where you go to school. Right? It's not by chance that you have the neighbors that you have. It's not even by chance that you are here tonight. Right? Our lives are not just a random collection of circumstances because there is a God in heaven who is at work in this world, and he has placed us where he has placed us for a reason. Do you believe this? I mean, do you like really believe this? Do you really believe that you are where you are and you know who you know, not by accident? 
But God has like an intention to all this. Why would God place you where he's placed you? I mean, could it be so that you could speak God's words to other people? That they might hear of this God through you? That there's a real one true God who is not distant like some satellite orbiting this earth and every once in a while we can kind of tap into him for like a line of communication or something like that? I mean, do you, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that God loves your coworkers? Do you believe that God loves your neighbors? And they're there for the sake of the gospel. You're there for the sake of the gospel to go to them. And I'd say if you're here to, today and you are not a Christian, I wonder how you currently think about the world. These men who came in initially and were asked to give this dream and interpretation, these men spoke to the king. They thought of the world as a closed world. That's how they viewed the world. If there even is a God, they say, they are far removed and they don't come near. I wonder if that's how you think, too. That there is no God, or even if there was a God, he's too removed, he's too disinterested. He's impersonal. My friend, I want you to consider the possibility of a God who speaks. And more importantly, of a God who's come near. So, we see God speaking that generates this fear and the unknown of this king. We see God speaking that creates this faith, right, in this servant. And then, what is God saying? What is God saying? That's what we get to at the end here, and we, we were told here that what he's saying is that he's, he's coming. He's coming. And if you believe that and you've trusted in him, this would create hope in a worshipful and grateful people. Verse 31 through 35, Daniel explains the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what we've been waiting for the whole time. Like, what is this dream? And he explains it here. And he says that Nebuchadnezzar saw this great image of a mighty person who was bright and frightening. The head was fine gold, the chest and arms were silver, its middle and thighs bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly of clay. Um, hopefully you haven't seen that on Streets of Gresham recently. Nobody like this. It's going to be a weird person, right? But as he's seeing this image in the dream, he sees this stone. And we're told the stone is not made with human hands, and the stone comes and strikes the image. It hits its feet of iron and clay and breaks the feet in pieces, and eventually the entire image is broken into pieces and becomes like chaff that's just like blown away, becomes nothing. So all these beautiful, big, heavy, seemingly indestructible, some of these things, they just kind of become chaff and blow away. But this small stone in the dream grows and grows until it fills the whole earth. That's the dream. And so in verse 36, Daniel begins to explain the interpretation of the dream. He says some substantial things about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, look at verse 37, for instance. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. So God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that the kingdom that he has was given to him by God. And then Daniel goes on to explain in verses 39 through 43 about how other kings and other kingdoms will come after him. Right? So God indicates a second kingdom that will rise and fall, a third kingdom that will rise and fall, a fourth kingdom that will even come after the Babylonians. So here in this particular text, the specific names of the nations are not given. 
right? And, and this is where I think as Christians we need to be wise. We need to be not overly dogmatic about things that the Scriptures don't speak about explicitly. I mean, if God really wanted us to know and He, he goes, you need to know this, you know, He could have told us that kind of thing, right? So we want to be careful in studying this and not miss the main point that we're supposed to get. I mean, there are pages and pages and pages and pages of people who've written about who these four kingdoms might be. I have some ideas. They're not worth sharing with you. But I mean, people give sermons longer than my sermon today about just who these four might be, okay? So, but that's not the point. The point is that these unidentified nations will rise, they will fall, and another will come. These nations come and go, but there is one kingdom that arrives, and it is eternal. It can't be destroyed, and that's the stone that's mentioned in the text. We see an explanation of this stone in verse 44. What does it say? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So God is going to set up a kingdom that's indestructible and eternal, and the kingdom starts as a small stone, and then it grows and grows and grows until it fills the whole earth. That's the image. So the question that we're supposed to be asking, just like Nebuchadnezzar should, is this, what's the stone? What's the stone? And fortunately, our Bibles want us to know the answer to that question. We see this stone first mentioned in Genesis 49, verse 24, It's a small mention of this stone of Israel. And then in Psalm 118, verse 22, we read this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Then in Isaiah, we read numerous mentions of this stone. But then after Daniel, there's no more mention of this stone for centuries. For centuries. Until there would be this traveling preacher making his way around the Roman Empire named Jesus of Nazareth. And he would speak about this stone. And if you read Luke chapter 20, which we'll get to next year, Jesus tells this parable about a man that plants a vineyard and the landowner goes away to another land and eventually, after there's been some crops, right? the landowner sends back someone to collect the rents from the tenants on his land. So he sends a servant. Jesus tells this story. He sends a servant. Servant shows up. They beat him and they send him back. The landowner sends another servant, a second servant. They beat him up, they send him back. Jesus says they sent a third servant. He gets beaten up and they send him back. And so the landowner finally says, I know what I'll do, I'll send my son. They will respect my son. So he sends his son and what do they do? They don't just beat up the son and send him back. They kill the son and they throw him out of the vineyard. So Jesus tells this parable and clearly He's telling a parable about himself. For he's the son who would be sent into the world and he'd be killed. He's the one who would reign even before the creation of the world. He's described as the Alpha and the Omega, right? The the A to Z, the, the first and the last. And this God, this son of God, he would take on flesh. He's described even as wisdom incarnate. And in the end of this parable, this is what Jesus says. It should be on the screen for you. He says, what then is this that is written? He reads Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So this stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, 
this dream that disturbed him and put fear in his bones, the stone that he saw reoccurring in that dream is none other than Jesus. Isn't that amazing? In this kingdom that grows and grows and eventually fills the entire earth is Jesus' kingdom. But know this, guys. Jesus didn't come and establish his kingdom by building up an army and overthrowing the Romans, did he? That's not how Jesus' kingdom works. Jesus came with no army, and in fact, he would be crushed, right, by Roman authorities on the cross. And in the moment that looked like he was utterly defeated for Jesus when he died and was buried, when everyone's like, hey, this king and his kingdom, it's put to an end, right? That was not the moment of defeat. That was the moment of victory. Because Sunday morning came and Jesus got up from death and having defeated Satan's sin and death, purchased salvation for anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in him as their king they would enter into his kingdom as citizens of that kingdom. I mean, how beautiful is this, right? This whole plot line is this tension in our story tonight. Who can know and interpret this dream? Who can know and interpret this dream? What God can reveal mysteries like this? And Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And now we are seeing that this God in heaven has not just given a message through Daniel, he's given his son the Word made flesh. He has come nearer than we could have ever dared to hope. So you want to get caught up in mysteries. This is the mystery, right? This is why, in part, when you get to the New Testament, Paul calls the gospel the mystery that has been revealed. This mystery, this stone is our hope. Jesus is the stone and all of his people that are citizens of his kingdom. We're being told we're built into this spiritual house that's joined to him, that's growing and expanding. And so if he's the cornerstone, if he falls, we fall too. But if he endures, we do too. So what's the whole point then for Nebuchadnezzar? Well, for one, God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that he gave Nebuchadnezzar the power that he has. If you look in verses 46 through 49 to the end of this story here, what happens after the dream is revealed? What happens? Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and he pays homage to Daniel. The most powerful man in the world falls on his face before a conquered teenage servant. He speaks well of Daniel's God as what? The God of gods the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. I mean, this is exactly how, you guys, this is exactly how humility is created. You encounter something greater than yourself. And here's the greatest man in the world, and he's encountered something greater. I mean, we know this to be true. I mean, who's ever stood in front of the Grand Canyon? Have you been in the Grand Canyon? Who's ever stood in front of the Grand Canyon and been like, I'm awesome? Has anybody ever done that? That's not the thought that enters your mind when you stand before the Grand Canyon, is it? You're like, wow, I'm small. I'm small. Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, I'm small. I'm small. I've heard it said before, pride walks into the room and says, here I am. With all the other people there. But humility walks in the room and says, there you are. There you are. Right, do you see? 
Nebuchadnezzar is saying, there you are, the God of Daniel. He stood before something greater. But secondly, God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that his kingdom will pass away. Can you imagine this? You're the king, Babylon, and you're being told, hey, your kingdom's going to, it's not going to work. It's not eternal, that's why. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know that there is a greater kingdom coming that is greater than his, and it will never be destroyed, unlike his own. So God would want Nebuchadnezzar then to what? Explore and learn about this greater kingdom. Jesus' kingdom has come, you guys, and it has come in fullness. This generates gratitude and worship if our hope is in this kingdom. And I don't mean hope like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? I don't mean hope like, oh, I I wish that could be true. But as in, no, it's going to happen. It's happening. It's coming. Uh, For for years, um, I would see these photos of Hawaii and Maui particularly, and I would see them and I would always think like, oh man, wouldn't that be nice to go to Hawaii, be on the beach, you know, and it's like raining downpouring in January or something. You're just like, wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, I wish. That'd be great. Me and my wife just celebrated our 15th year wedding anniversary this summer, and, and knowing that was coming up, we're like, you know what, we're just going to keep putting off. So we're going we're gonna to do it, right? So we purchased tickets to go to Maui here in like a little over a week or something like that. We're really excited, kind of nervous. We don't know if it'll happen, you know, but we're, we're thinking it will at this point. Still, we're holding out hope, but it's been interesting. The day we purchased the tickets, things changed. I went from looking at those photos thinking like, wouldn't that be nice? Oh, I hope to go there someday. I wish. And as seemingly like everybody in our church went to Hawaii this year, it seems like. I don't know what's going on. But like every time someone go to Hawaii and post their pictures, I went from like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? I hope to do that someday too. I'm going to do that. That's coming. Lord willing, right? The hope changed, right? Do you see the difference between wishing something in terms of hope? And hoping in something, you're like, no, that's coming. That's my reality, right? That's the difference between wishing and and just, we're going to be there. Guys, when we read this dream, that this dream is coming true in Daniel chapter 2, do we actually believe it? Do you read this and you're like, wouldn't that be nice? Oh, I hope that would be, be great someday. Or do you read something like this, that the stone will grow and fill the earth, and you're like, that's happening. I'm going to experience that in all of its fullness. He's come. And this invitation to enter his kingdom is open to anyone. Anyone. All you need to do is go, if I'm going to be made, I have to be made right with God. If God's holy and I have all this sin, Jesus has come, he's given his life that I could be con- confess my sin and be forgiven of that sin through his shed blood. But then to be a part of this kingdom, it doesn't just mean that I'm forgiven, it means that I now look at Jesus and I go, you're my king. I follow you. My allegiance is to you. I'm living for that kingdom. Do we actually believe this? If we believe it, this becomes our controlling reality in how we live. Like, let this dream that's come true fill your heart and faith that results in humility. It results in faith. It results in poise. And as we see other kingdoms around us that seem so powerful, indestructible even, don't we believe this is true? That Jesus' kingdom is growing? 
You guys, Jesus is succeeding in this world. Jesus isn't failing, he's winning. He is. So so what kingdom are you hoping in then today? Right, the hope beneath the hope. The hope that can't be stolen from you. The hope that's kind of not for sale. What kingdom are you hoping in? Where is your trust today? Trust meaning the sense of saying, I have to have this. I'm leaning all my weight on this. If this falls over, I'm falling over. That kind of trust. Where you rest your weight. This text tells us clearly that kingdoms come and go, all kingdoms, even the greatest empires, no nation in the world will rise to the top and influence and keep it forever. It can't, unless it's this one. This is the only one. So we don't put our hope in any other kingdom except the kingdom of God. If you do, that'll result in fear, poisonous fear. If you put your hope here, man, I'll give you gratitude and worship. I'll leave you with a short quote from J.C. Ryle. I love J.C. Ryle. He says, leave off all anxious thought about the future. All is going well. Though our eyes may not see it, the kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. I'm so glad I don't know the future. I'm so glad I at least know that this is my future. Hear me? Let's pray. Lord, we pray and we're reminded of your words in Hebrews. God, we want to be grateful people. Grateful people for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And God, we want to be people then who offer to you acceptable worship in this life. We want to be people who are filled with reverence and awe. God, you are a consuming fire. And yet you've given yourself for us. Lord, we feel, I, feel, I feel so powerless in these moments. I know you but you are powerful, God. To you belongs might and wisdom. And I pray tonight for every single person in this room that we would encounter you, the living God, because we know that if we encounter someone greater than us, especially you, that'll put us in our proper position. So help us to see your greatness tonight and the unshakable hope that we have in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.